with respect to anti-corruption and bribery and to conflict zones, I think the issue is that it's everybody's responsibility. So everybody has to contribute in meaningful ways in the ways that they can, even if there's primary players. So I would say on the peace front, the primary players are still going to be the conflict actors themselves, right? So it's still governments, it's still non-state armed groups, but all, everyone else is impacted by conflict. And so everybody else should be at the table trying to figure out ways to deal with this. And that includes for-profit companies. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Dr. John Katsos is an associate professor of business law and ethics at the American University of Sharjah. He is a prolific author having written well over 20 papers around business ethics, law, due diligence, and a wide variety of other topics. I met him through a series of articles he and a research team posted in a recent issue of the Harvard Business Review, Big Idea, and that led to a dialogue that he and I have been engaging in since that time. In this episode, he talks about due diligence in conflict zones and how climate change leading to migration has become an important topic for ESG going forward. It's a fascinating exploration of many of the underlying causes that have led to environmental disasters and conflicts throughout the globe and tied into the corporate response around ESG. I know you will enjoy this episode. John, one of the things I know you have studied from an academic perspective is due diligence, and it strikes me that there's multiple levels of due diligence on multiple actors that any company working in a conflict zone would need to perform. Obviously, the people you're doing business with, but those you may be making extrajudicial payments to, as well as to the national government to see if it's uh, legitimate and or recognized by Western powers. How do you counsel companies to think through due diligence in conflict zones? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first point is to make sure that you can do the due diligence. That's really the critical factor. And in a lot of these places, you, you simply can't. It's very hard to assure that you can actually get the information that you need to do the due diligence. So for companies in conflict zones, that means having a very clear red line that if you can't do due diligence, you have to assume that money is going to places and people who they shouldn't be going to. And that also means then having a process for dealing with withdrawing or shutting down operations in, in cases where due diligence can't be done. John, when uh, most Americans think of uh, modern slavery or human trafficking, they uh, start back to the Liam Neeson Taken movies, and they think about sexual exploitation. And that is really not the problem corporations face. They face either human trafficking and modern slavery in their supply chain or simply exploited workers who may be paid a subsistence level of income or certainly below market rates. How do you help companies think through the issue of low-paid wages or exploited workforce in connection with migration issues going forward? Yeah, it's a great point. So there's a couple of ways that I think we walk through for companies on how to deal with this. One is 
to really go beyond just what contracts will say. So there's a lot of places where the contract will say one thing, but what the workers are actually getting is much less than what the contract is saying. So it's important to go beyond, at least on a spot check basis, beyond what the paperwork is saying to actually ask workers what they're getting paid, right? What's the situation like on the ground? And being able to verify that what's in the contract is actually what's being given to the workers. So we've seen that there's lots of places where the contract will say one thing and you know what the contract they're providing for due diligence might not be the same document they're providing even to the government on what the government work or what the terms of the agreement actually are. Or they may provide a, a document that's not actually the official document, right? That's something that they've just written up for a Western company. So it's important to actually get, first of all, the, the real documentation. But then second, to verify that the documentation is actually something that's taking place. So for suppliers, right, this is something that companies are used to doing in other contexts as well. So it's just important to make sure that there's follow-up and that companies, when they're doing their due diligence, are at least incorporating in there some amount of spot checking with workers to ensure that what's being reported to the company is actually what's taking place on the ground. John, we've been focusing on the S in ESG in some of these questions and the sustainability, uh, the parts of your supply chain that may hold people held in bondage or workers that are exploited, and it's certainly a critical role. But there's also an E in ESG. And what I really wanted to maybe explore with you is the more difficult question I see of how companies can accurately start with trying to make a difference around climate change in some of these geographic areas, but then how do they properly report it so that they've met U.S. or other reporting standards? Or are we just at a nascent part of our conversation where we're just starting to explore these issues? Funny enough, with the environmental reporting, I think it's actually much easier to do the reporting because the reporting is pretty advanced at this point. Whether you're doing carbon reporting, whether you're doing reporting on things like recycling and where your waste is going, the reporting structures are in place from international organizations and NGOs, from academic institutions, to really allow for companies to do thorough environmental reporting. I think the hard thing is when you go from zero to starting to report, you have to spend a lot of money, frankly, if you're a big company, to get from zero to adequate reporting. There's a big gap between nothing and something. Whereas if you have some level of reporting going on, upscaling it tends to be less burdensome. But there's a certain amount of learning costs and actual costs that go into just simply monitoring things. So simply monitoring how much energy you're using and what the carbon intensity of that energy is, where your waste is actually going. And then even beyond that, how, where are your workers coming from? What, how do they get to work? All those things factor into whether it's carbon reporting or, or waste reporting, but the various environmental structures related to reporting are sufficiently intense at this point and sufficiently detailed that pretty much every company in every industry could do it well if they had the time and the focus to do it. John, I often tell people that 80% of ESG you're probably already doing now. And when I say that, I'm thinking about diversity inclusion. I'm thinking about supply chain. I'm thinking about not paying bribes and doing business and compliance and then good corporate governance practices up and down the corporation. But it strikes me in listening to your last answer that companies actually may be doing a lot more environmental 
the E part of ESG than they actually realize because you have to account on a either a financial basis or a procurement basis for the energy you consume. You may not be reporting it under the E of ESG, but I bet somewhere you've got a payment stub or we, we paid X this month or X this year. And so it seems to me that that data is there. It's not categorized and analyzed really from the ESG perspective, but even when you say going from sort of zero to adequate reporting, they may be a lot further along than than they realize if they just take a look at it in a different way. Would that be a fair assessment? I think so. I think the other problem is there's a lot of siloing in larger organizations where someone might have the data, but the organization doesn't have it systematically or categorically across the organization. So you might have procurement has particular data that's not being shared across the entire organization. So when folks are trying to do reporting, the reporting folks may not even know that procurement or anybody else actually has this information. So I had one company who I consulted for who their facilities unit had incredibly detailed energy data on a building-by-building basis, but nobody had asked them whether they had that data. And so the folks who were trying to do the report were spinning their wheels trying to figure out, you know, where do we get this from? And no one had ever asked the facilities folks. So finally, the chief operating officer mentioned just offhandedly in a meeting where the facilities head was present that they were, you know, they, they were having trouble finding this data. And the facilities person just put up their hand and said, oh, we have that. We have it. And they had very detailed data. So I think your point is, is spot on that a lot of times companies are collecting this information, but they just don't know where it is, uh, especially in larger organizations they may not have a good data management and data sharing policy, which is a broader issue. That's why I think we see in a lot of companies a shift to hiring more data managers and hiring more information specialists who can help bridge those types of gaps. Are you getting either a consulting request or other requests from corporations to help them understand not simply what their obligations might be, but how to report the information and actually build out and use it going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, was, I think we see a lot on two fronts. There's a lot of push on the company side for more formalized reporting. And I think they're using the accounting firms, frankly, have done an excellent job of trying to build out their abilities to do that sort of reporting and to help companies create accounting frameworks related to that, again, especially at the bigger companies. But I think the other thing we're seeing is much more intent and much more money put behind reporting related to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So whether that's on the environmental side, because the SDGs are very broad and they tend to cover all of ESG, or on the social side or the governance side, I think we see companies that are much more focused on trying to align what they're doing with what not only other companies are doing, but with what governments and civil society actors are doing on these sustainable development goals. Have you seen or actually done any studies of corporate responses in conflict zones and in areas of climate change where you're able to track any of the results, or is that something that you're perhaps considering as well? Yeah, so I would say this is the holy grail of our field is to try to figure out how business can try to track businesses before, during, and after conflict and the societies that they operate in to see the, the direct impacts. It's really hard. And it's hard because, uh, first of all, it's hard because almost all data in conflict zones, other, even casualty data, is sometimes hard to come by. And it's hard to find reliable data. 
I would say casualty data is the best data that we have. But even when you try to measure things like destruction, so if you're trying to put economic values on you know, the burning of a factory or a, a village or a town or something, it's often hard to even get that kind of data. Never mind trying to actually talk to people, which is most of what my research is, right, is interviewing people and companies to try to get the lay of the land and, and see where the, the process is. So what that means from a, from a studying standpoint is a lot of it is going to be secondary or indirect to what we actually want to measure. So when we look at things like the impact of a CSR policy or program in a conflict zone, it's often hard to know how much of an impact that program has because there's so many other things going on around it. So there was, this, there was a great program that Chevron ran in Nigeria after there was a set of ethnic clashes. And Chevron decided, look, we have to do a much better job of engaging with the local community. And they put together this incredible project where they would work with local community leaders and basically provide funding to the projects that this multi-stakeholder dialogue committee would decide in each territory, in each group, they would basically decide how to spend the money. And Chevron would get, obviously, a say in that, but would, would really empower the local communities to, to spend, monies and spend the money in ways that were going to help benefit them and build peace. Great program. It's really hard to draw you know, direct measures on what the impact is of the Chevron policies by themselves and the program by themselves versus all the other things that were going on around it. And that's probably the one we have the best information on. So in other settings, it's really hard to draw definitive judgments about the success or failure of particular programs in contributing to peace. Let me end with another uh, pretty big picture question, which is, uh, as you know, I tend to focus on a corporate response to the international scourge of bribery and corruption through compliance programs, through compliance with laws such as the UK Bribery Act, the US FCPA, French Sepultu, or whatever the the anti-corruption regime is. I wanted to conclude by asking you, do you see a role for for-profit corporations in this, or is this really left better left, in your opinion, to NGOs? I mean, I think on with respect to anti-corruption and bribery and to conflict zones, I think the issue is that it's everybody's responsibility. So everybody has to contribute in meaningful ways, in the ways that they can, even if there's primary players. So I would say on the peace front, the primary players are still going to be the conflict actors themselves, right? So it's still governments, it's still non-state armed groups, but all everyone else is impacted by conflict. And so everybody else should be at the table trying to figure out ways to deal with this. And that includes for-profit companies. That's especially true in places where for-profit companies have a considerable amount of power, right? So this is another dynamic is that in some conflict zones, the private sector is a minimal player, while in others, they're really powerful players, whether they're it's because they're very large companies as compared to the government, or because there's lots of small players who through business associations are able to influence things. So a nice example is in Tunisia, the business association, right, the equivalent of the Chamber of Commerce in Tunisia, played a really key role in creating peace in Tunisia, right? So in making sure that there was a, a just transition and trying to make sure that there was a peaceful transition. In fits and starts, sure, but that's why the head of the Chamber of Commerce was awarded, was one of the four Nobel Peace Prize awardees from Tunisia, from that transition. So if the, the more power that the private sector has, the more it has to play that role. It really has to take on that role. Um, but again, it's conflict area to conflict area specific because every place is so different. 
Well, John, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you. As always, it's a fascinating discussion with you, and I greatly hope we can continue this conversation. I hope so, too. And thanks so much again for the invite, Tom, and hopefully we'll chat soon.